This is a psalm that talks about the greatness of God and many of his attributes. Psalm 110, and I'm going to read all of the verses. A psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is your, at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Amen. Father God, we come to your word with trembling, with reverence, and yet we recognize how much more reverence that we need to have. We come seeking your grace. We come seeking your joy. We come seeking the faith that this psalm was uh, intended to engender. And so I pray that you would be with this, your people, that you would encourage us, you would take the feebleness and weakness of preaching and cause your wor word to triumph in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> this past week, Dinesh Chand, an Indian friend of mine, told me a story that I think illustrates quite well, how many times there is a disjunction between doctrine and the way in which we live. And I think anybody who's been to India even one time knows how uh, the streets are filled and even the highways are just filled with not just autos and trucks and bicycles and motorcycles, but cows and chickens and dogs and pedestrians and anything that moves seems to want to be on those roads. And it can be quite mesmerizing as you're witnessing this swirling and moving around that this traffic does and does quite uh, efficiently. I uh, uh, was amazed to see even on divided highways, and there's a few modern divided highways, to see trucks and motorcycles and all kinds of things whizzing at you from apparently the wrong side of the street. And I say apparently the wrong side of the street because any part of the street and even the dirt on both sides of the street seems to be fair game for people to be hitting at, at uh, high speed. And at first, you just got to cover your eyes, close your eyes. I mean, it's just like terrifying. Uh, especially this last trip. This is one of the worst trips I've had to India. <laughs> and um, after a while, you get used to it. And then you just begin to be fascinated. Hour after hour of dri driving and very few people getting killed. And you haven't been killed yet. <laughs> and it's fascinating and you're thankful to God, you know. But um, it looks like chaos, but there is some order and arrangement and everything hinges on your horn working. Uh, there isn't very many seconds that go by where you're not tooting the horn again. In fact, on the back of every truck, there's these big signs that say, please use your horn. <laughs> That's just an expected part. It's a different part of culture. But anyway, back to the story that uh, Dinesh uh, Chand was telling me. He said he had um, a friend who was driving in a taxi with him. And the guy was just witnessing all of the chaos and people going on the wrong side of the road and off the road and everywhere. And he commented to the taxi driver, he says, you know, I was wondering what those 
white stripes down the road are. You know the ones that are painted on the middle of the street? And the taxi driver looked puzzled for a moment, and after a while he says, you know, I think those are things that the British left behind. <laughs> you know, they've always had these dots on the road, uh, you know. Must be important. They've always been there, but it has no effect on your driving whatsoever. But as I was thinking about that story, it made me think about that's the way doctrine many times is in our lives. It has no impact upon us. Now, doctrine was intended to transform us. That was God's intent, and that was certainly true of the doctrines taught in this wonderful chapter, which we're only going to get halfway through today. If Jesus is really God, then it ought to cause our hearts to worship him and to tremble before Him. If He is the God of this universe who brought all things into existence with the word of His power, if He is really King, that it ought to make us want to, want to bow down and to obey Him. And it ought to make us confident that things are not out of control in this wacky world. <clears throat> the elections are just where God wants them, probably leading us to judgment. If he really is judge, who judges in history, then we ought to have a confidence that there is rhyme and reason to the disasters that have come upon the nations over the last 2,000 years, that they're just what God had intended. Many Christians doubt it, but our theology demands it. If Jesus really is the priest king, it ought to affect our lives. If bloody wars are a part of his plan, which the last two verses of this psalm make clear that they are, then... It ought not to disturb us that God has allowed bloody wars down through history because God is accomplishing His purposes, their redemptive judgments to lead this world uh, to Christ. And if you examine the wars that have happened down through history, you'll see many of these wars have led people to realize that man is not the answer and uh, they have turned uh, to Christ. On the other hand, if He commands us to be responsible, as this psalm does indeed do, then we ought to be realizing that our actions are very critical in the advancement of God's kingdom. We need to be involved. If he wins in history, then it ought to stir us up to have great faith, to expect great things from him and to attempt great things for him. You see, as we're going through this, this psalm this week and next week, we need to let these truths sink down deep into our lives and transform us. Ask God to make them uh, to transform us. That was what God intended doctrine to, to do. You need to be responding to God. Don't respond to me. Respond to God because Jesus is in our midst this morning and he is glorified by the appropriate responses that we make to his word. Now, some Christians have put up wrong road signs that say, don't go this way. Jesus is not going to be king until after the second coming. And in my books, that's a denial of uh, Palm Sunday. But more to the point, these road signs can be dangerous because they can lead us into a head-on collision with reality. And I want to just give you a few road signs that people, not God, but people have uh, strewn out there. One leader said, we should live like people who don't expect to be around much longer. Now, let me ask you a question. Would you hire a taxi driver in India if he told you he was going to croak any minute now? <laughs> Would you invest your money with a person who told you he wasn't going to be around much longer? I think not. You'd be a little bit nervous. Or what about this sign? The darker the world gets, the lighter my heart gets, because that means we are that much closer to the second coming. 
Now, would you elect such a person to Congress? I mean, this person wants things. He's happy that things are getting worse. And we want to elect people to Congress to get things better, right? That's a road sign that would be in conflict with many things that we are called to do as Christians. Here's another road sign. Any attempt to establish long-term change in institutions will only result in the leaven of humanism permeating Christianity, unquote. Well, I don't think that fellow would be a very good candidate for City Hall. Or would you invite the guy that gives the next quote to inspire your volunteers to get active, make a difference in our society? He says, we have reached the point of no return. We are on an irreversible course for world disaster. Boy, that really inspires the troops, doesn't it? (laughs) Would you invite the following Reformed speaker to your salt and light conference? You're having these conferences because you want people to get out there and be salt and light and make a difference in society. He says, the world is filled with sin and getting worse, a hopeless situation beyond repair and impossible to salvage. I guarantee if you start following road signs like that, it's going to make a practical difference in your life, but it's not going to be the kind of practical difference that will advance the cause of Christ like this psalm calls us to do. And it is precisely these kinds of attitudes that have had a profoundly negative impact upon the church in the last 100 years. It has made the church passive, careless, uninvolved, uninterested in being salt and light in culture. And so to me, it is no wonder that humanists have taken over. It is no wonder at all. House and ICE have said that our goal should not be the conversion of the nations. They said that's impossible. There is no way the nations could be converted. In fact, they said, quote, God has not given the church a proper dose of grace to Christianize the world. Well, if you believe that, that will completely change your tactics of evangelism. It's road signs that you're following. Now, if you've ever had doubts that the Great Commission could be fulfilled and whether all nations could be discipled, here is a psalm that will stir your heart up with faith with enthusiasm, with boldness. In fact, that's exactly what this psalm did in the early church. This was one of the favorite psalms of the church fathers. I've made it over the last 10 years a goal to be reading through the church fathers, and I've been staggered to find these guys actually are supportive of our Protestant uh, religion, and Luther and Calvin and other reformers said exactly the same thing. But this psalm really gripped their hearts. Athanasius, for example, used this psalm over and over to say that Christianity will triumph. We will Christianize the world. This is a psalm that gave great hope and encouragement to, to Calvin and to, and to um, uh, Knox and Wesley and Whitfield and one of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said, I myself believe that King Jesus will reign and the idols be utterly abolished, for I expect that the same power which turned the world upside down once will still continue to do it. The Holy Ghost would never suffer the imputation to rest upon his holy name that he was not able to convert the world. And by the time we're done with this psalm, this week and next week, I hope you have the same confidence, the same faith, the same enthusiasm that Charles Spurgeon had. This is a fantastic psalm to get away from discouragement, whether it's discouragement over the advancement of your own personal holiness or whether it's uh, holiness within society. Now, everyone... And this is all by way of background. Everyone agrees that this psalm speaks about the total triumph and victory of Jesus. They just disagree on the timing. 
Amillennialists typically say that it will happen in one day at the end of history. Premillennialists say that it will happen uh, a thousand years before the end of history, but it will be accomplished through that thousand years. So they're much closer to uh, the truth. But we believe that it began at Christ's ascension that's described in verse 1, continues to grow and grow and increase until finally Christ is ready uh, to come back. Now, we're not going to get into the debate of amillennialism, premillennialism, and the other. I'm wanting to focus on positive, positive applications of this passage, but this is an incredibly foundational passage. Just to give you a little bit of uh, insight, this psalm is quoted by the New Testament more than any other scripture in the Old Testament. 21 times to be exact, and there are additional allusions. These are direct quotes or additional allusions to the psalm. Just by way of comparison, Paul's favorite passage on the foundational doctrine of justification by faith is quoted only three times in the New Testament. It's Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by his faith. Now, in contrast, verse 1 of this psalm is quoted 18 times. Verse 4 is quoted three times, and as I mentioned, the whole psalm has various other allusions uh, in the New Testament. So it's incredibly foundational to the theology of the New Testament. This is what Acts 2 uh, was the foundation of Peter's sermon to prove that Jesus is indeed at the right hand of the Father, and this is what he has promised to send forth in uh, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. This was foundational to Hebrews. When Hebrew says Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law, the, the temple is past, and Jesus is now in his heavenly temple directing history. This was uh, foundational to Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is explaining why Jesus has to remain in heaven. He has to remain in heaven because there's still enemies that need to be subdued. And he must remain at the right hand of the Father till all enemies are put beneath his feet. And so it's a psalm that not only encourages us that Jesus will win the battle, but it also speaks of the enormous opposition that comes against the church. And so there's optimism. There is also some realism that is there. So let's dive in. First thing that we see in Psalm 110 is that Jesus is up to the job. Okay? He is powerful enough to be able to accomplish this task, and he can handle it precisely because he is David's divine Lord. Verse 1 says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now, that was a verse that Jesus majorly embarrassed the Pharisees over. The Pharisees knew that this was referring to a coming Messiah. And so it says, Jehovah said to my Adonai, the Lord said to my Lord. And they didn't quite know how to deal with Christ's use of the scripture. Let me give you a little background. When Jesus cleansed the temple, the Pharisees were furious. And they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And remember, he said, well, I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you tell me something, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they didn't want to answer that because they would have gotten stoned by the people. John the Baptist was so popular. But he didn't answer them outright. What he did instead was he gave them some parables that made it so clear that he was the owner of the temple, he was the owner of Jerusalem and of Israel, and he was going to come to judge and to destroy both. And then he quotes this psalm and settles the issue of authority. Here's how Matthew words it. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. 
He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. It's Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46. Now, the riddle for the Pharisees was, how could, how could the coming Messiah be both the son of David and the Lord of David? Or to use the, the figure in Isaiah, how could the coming Messiah be both the branch of David and the root of David? Seems like that's a contradiction. How could he be both of those? If he is... If the Messiah is the root of David, that means David grows out of the root. The root produces David, creates David. David is dependent upon this coming Messiah. But if the Messiah is the branch of David, that means that David is, I mean, that the Messiah is coming out of David, that he is a a son of David. And so it was a major difficulty for them to understand. There were a lot of stumpers like this for the Jews trying to read the Old Testament. You see, unless Messiah was both man and God, this would be impossible. So first of all, there was the problem of being David's Lord. Secondly, how can any mere man sit at God's right hand? Hebrews 1 verse 13 says that not even an angel would ever dare to have that ascribed to him. All of the Jews knew it would be blasphemy to say any mere creature could sit at God's right hand. There is no way that that could be achieved. And yet here, very clearly, it says that the Messiah is going to sit at God's right hand. When Christ told his trial court that from now on, they would see him sitting at the right hand of the Father and coming on the clouds of glory. That's Matthew twenty-six sixty-four. <coughs> the Pharisees accused him of blasphemy because... That was making himself to be God. Well, indeed, he was claiming to be divine. And so uh, Jesus highlights the Trinity in this verse. The Spirit inspires David to record something that the Father will say to the Son. So the first point that we can derive from this psalm is that Messiah will be God. He's up to the job. He's almighty. He's the creator of all things. He spoke all things uh, into existence. Hebrews says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Here's what William Hendrickson says in his commentary. David is promising the mediator such preeminence, power, authority, and majesty as would be proper only for one who, as to his person from all eternity, was, is now, and forever will be God. And both Christ and the apostles use this passage to prove his deity, especially Hebrews 1. A second principle taught in verses 1 through 2 is that Christ is man. Okay, though he was already Lord at the time that David wrote that, in the future it indicates that he would be made a king by divine appointment. He's a preexistent God, but he's coming as a man. After quoting this verse, Acts 2 says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So God made him Lord. Another indication he's a man is seen in verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Christ would arise out of Zion, out of the church, out of Israel. That means he's going to be an Israelite. He's going to be a man. 
And thirdly, he's called a priest in verse 4. And so Jesus is up to the job. He is both God and man. He had to be God in order to make his sacrifice be an eternal and infinite uh, an, an infinitely worthy sacrifice that would be able to cover all of our sins and meet the, the wrath of, uh, of the Father. And he had to be a man in order to be able to represent us to the Father, in order to be able to, uh, to identify with our needs and to be able to, uh, to work in our lives. And so he was definitely up to the job of converting the world uh, to Christ Jesus. Amen? We can bank on it. We can step out on faith on it. We can worship Him for this. And so we need to let these truths sink into our souls. We've got an awesome Savior. We should never tire of worshiping Him. Now, a third principle taught in this psalm is that Christ would become king before the end of history. Sit at my right hand until... Okay, sit at my right hand. That's His kingship. Sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies your footstool. So Christ doesn't begin reigning just after all of the enemies are subdued and crushed. Verse 2 says, rule in the midst of your enemies. There are still enemies around for uh, a period of time after Christ rules. Now, of course, the New Testament clearly identifies the time when Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. We've already quoted Acts chapter 2, which says it was at his ascension. And uh, there's other scriptures along the same line. Mark 16, 19 says, So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. It was at Christ's ascension that the process of beginning to subdue all enemies under his feet uh, began. Now, this is quite different from the way many people uh, see history. Uh, Walvoord, very popular Bible teacher, and he's a, a godly man. I respect him in many ways, but he said this. Therefore, the only solution to the turmoil among nations is the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory to the earth. What is he saying? He's saying there isn't anything that's happened in history so far that could be a solution to this. It's the second coming that reverses history. It's not the cross of Christ that reverses history. Um, Salem Kirbin says the same, without the hope of our Lord's return, what future do any of us have? Now, we believe that the cross reverses history, not the second coming. This psalm is about the king priest. It's about the cross. The cross is the answer, and it's the ascension of Christ that begins the application of this cross in New Testament history. Palm Sunday was not just a sweet time, you know, when Jesus offered himself as a king and is sadly disappointed when people rejected him. No, God ordained that they would reject him. God ordained that there would be enemies when he establishes his kingdom, and he would be reigned for a period of time while there's great opposition to him. This was God's purpose. It was not something that they were surprised by. Enemies don't overturn his rule. There is no postponement of his kingdom. Now, a third indication of the timing is that verse 3 says, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. Acts 1.8 says that when the power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you shall be witnesses. There is your volunteers. Okay. In Acts 2, the power of the Spirit comes upon them. Peter goes out and he explains what's happening. What does he do? He quotes Psalm 110. He says, this is proof positive that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, that, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Proof positive, the sending of the Holy Spirit. And so in this verse, in this uh, psalm, it's quite natural, very significant, 
that after speaking about the ascension, he says, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. These volunteers are the mighty missions outreach that began with the power of Pentecost. And so it all speaks very clearly to the beginning of the kingdom in the first century A.D. Now, let's spend a little bit more time on that last phrase, because I think it illustrates point number four, which says that Christ reigns by devout acknowledgement. There is a recognition in the psalm that there will be enemies. In fact, there are three enemies that are highlighted in the New Testament. It's our flesh, the world, and the devil. There's three enemies that are fighting against uh, his lordship. And part of Christ's reign is to bring about the glad acknowledgement of his reign on the part of all. Now here, David calls him my Lord. Okay, and this is what's going to be happening all down through history. People are going to be calling out and saying, my Lord, I submit, I bow my neck before you. In verse three, he says, your people shall be volunteers, or as the King James has it, uh, will be willing in the day of your power. But it took power to make that willingness to accomplish that. When Peter quoted this verse, what did he do? He called upon the people to repent, to acknowledge their sins, to submit to King Jesus, to submit to him as Lord and Savior. And then it says that the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Now, there is another implication of that phrase, and that is this, that Christ has chosen and the Father has chosen for Christ to advance his kingdom through his people. He's not going to do it. While we're watching on the grandstands and saying, yeah, Christ, go ahead. That's great. You're doing a good job. No, we're the ones who are the volunteers. We're in the army. You know, we're conscripted. We're fighting. We're dying. We're making sacrifices for the sake of his kingdom. Now, think about this. Think about this. The almighty God could, with a snap of his fingers, could, with a word from his mouth, have converted everyone, could have turned this world into a world without sin, into perfect righteousness. He could have accomplished it all. And yet, this almighty God has chosen to extend his kingdom through the weakness of your words and through your actions. And there are many passages like this that speak of him advancing every inch of territory through the weakness of human vessels. In his book, An All-Around Ministry, Charles Spurgeon speaks in awe and wonder that God would do this, that God would... Uh, choose to use the feebleness of our mouths and our actions to bring about this new creation. He said this, It is strange that instead of speaking and saying with his own lips, let there be light, he speaks the illuminating word by our lips. Now, he's speaking of God using the foolishness of preaching and of lay witnessing and things like that to bring people to life and uh, speaking the light of the gospel into their souls. He continues, Instead of fashioning a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness by a mere fiat of his power, he couples himself with our weakness and so performs his purpose. Now, I don't know about you, but this blows me out of the water. This is incredible. This humbles me, but it also exhilarates me. This is transforming. How does Christ advance his kingdom? He says he does it through volunteers. And why we have things in such a mess around us nowadays is because we don't have very many people who are volunteers in a Gideon's army going out and being reckless for the sake of Christ. And how do you get such volunteers? Well, Christians will never have such a a, a heart of volunteerness, if that is such a word, apart from the experiencing the day of his power. 
Apart from the, the Holy Spirit coming in, we're not going to be able to have that kind of a thing. And yet God, from time immemorial, has worked such a spirit in the lives of a remnant. You don't have to be a majority. You know, if you are the Gideon's army, you don't really need to be a part of the army. The bulk of Gideon's army did what? They went home, right? And people have the freedom to do that. They're still Jews. They were still God's people, but they were not willing to make the risks and uh, and take the flack of going out there. And so God had a weeding out process and the bulk of the army, they just blithely went on their own way, being self-absorbed, preoccupied with their own pleasures, their own desires. God still won the battle, didn't he? Still won the battle through that remnant. It takes the power of God's grace and the gift of his spirit to give us the boldness that the Christians got on the day of Pentecost. But let me tell you something. Even though you have the option, God gives you the option of being part of the bulk of the army who doesn't even get involved until they're winning. And they say, oh, yeah, we want to get involved in this. And they start getting involved in the action. But uh, I forget where I was going with that sentence, but... uh, God allows people to to miss out on life if that's their desire. But there is no other life that is worth the living. It takes dedication, but it'll bring fulfillment in life and treasures in heaven. So don't be discouraged. If you're part of the Gideon's army and you wonder, how come there's so few? God gets even the greater glory when he works through weakness, doesn't he? And through the few. Now, there's a book I want to recommend that you read. It's a book written by Buddy Hansen. I read it on the plane for my ministry trip that I was on this uh, week, and it is powerful. It's called, It's Time to Unquo the Status. (laughs) And uh, you all know about the status quo that everybody seems to succumb to. And he says, well, it's time to unquo that status quo. Turn things upside down. And the subtitle says, How to Normalize the Present Abnormal Culture of a Non-Christian Upside-Down World and Turn It Right Side Up with Christian Principles. Now, this book highlights the missing ingredients that keep people from being effective volunteers. These are the missing ingredients that keep them from living out the connection between the awesomeness of this king-priest after the order of Melchizedek and us being volunteers in his army. Everyone has a role to play in God's kingdom if they will embrace it. And some people say, but we are so weak. Weakness is immaterial. What is really material is whether you are passionate to experience the power of God's grace in the midst of your weakness. It's a radical commitment to his power that makes the difference. And so my encouragement is to be sold out Gideon's army not the multitude that laps with their mouth. Now, here's some of the chapter headings that, um, that he has in this book. The first one is identity theft. The first unquo. And he shows that the Christian worldview has been infected with a virus from the world's worldview. We tend to think like the world. And it's made us impotent. And I've seen some of this impotency in our own congregation. And he points out this is identity theft. Our identity is not radically different from the world and it will never overturn the world, turn the world upside down until it is. The second unquo flows from this. It's reclaiming our identity. And he gives us some practical steps on how you can reclaim that identity that we will have. Now, it's going to cost you something to do that. 
It always costs you something to live uh, the, 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 the radical Christian life. It'll cost you time and energy. It may cost you some, um, some uh, reputation. It may cost you name-calling because the bulk of the army is not comfortable with the fact that you're out there hardcore and you're showing them up. And, and so there may be every spiritual name out there that they will call you that are on the books. Third, unquote, Satan's fivefold devices to distort our worldview. And he tells you what you can do about that. Fourth, unquote, your vision for the future. And he's got a bunch of other unquotes in here that uh, will help to make you into a revolutionary army. And I highly recommend that you buy this. Don't even bother borrowing it from me. Just go ahead and buy it. Buddy Henson, unquote. It's time to unquote the, the status. Okay, let's move on. A fifth point in this psalm, and this is the last one we're going to look at today, is that Christ reigns over a disputed empire. I've had dispensationalists say that Christ cannot possibly be reigning now. Look at all the evil that's around you. Can you believe that this is Christ's kingdom? It's Satan who's having a heyday. It's not Christ who's having a heyday. And I just turn to this passage and I say, well, it says right here, as explicitly as you can get, that it was God's intention that Jesus begin his kingdom and continue his kingdom, reigning in the midst of his enemies. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 1 Corinthians 15 quotes this and concludes, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. Well, let me tell you something. It's not just the enemies out there that we need to focus on. We have enemies right within our midst, right within our own members. Our flesh is one of the three enemies that's identified uh, by the New Testament. And uh, what you need to do is say to the Lord, Lord, I want to be a volunteer in your army. Now, there are enemies who are disputing every square inch of planet Earth, and we can expect backlash from the world, the flesh, and the devil. If you're not fighting uh, by God's grace on all three fronts, you're losing on at least one front. Okay, don't be surprised if we receive backlash from the ACLU and other organizations. It's almost inevitable at some point or another. And yet, who is the winner? Jesus is the winner. Even if we are thrown in jail, even if we die, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. And so Christ rules over a disputed empire. And I urge you to be one of the people uh, who is fighting for him, do not be one of the people who is disputing his right to subdue every area uh, to his feet. You're either one of his volunteers or you're one of the problems. Now, I've got a lot more to say on this uh, psalm, but uh, more than I can say in one sermon, so I'm going to save the rest for next week on Resurrection Day. Actually, the second part of this psalm has some really exciting stuff, but it's also got some chilling things to say as well. I don't think anybody gets warm fuzzies over verses 6 and 7. <laughs> you know, you look over the last 2,000 years, and it illustrates exactly what verses 6 and 7. There are many places that were filled with dead bodies. Yes, there have been kings and uh, heads of governments who have been executed. This is part of God's, uh, of God's uh, plan in history. We must see Jesus as he really is, not the form, uh, warm fuzzy a person that many people make him out to be. Yes, he is a good God. Yes, he is a kind God, but he is also a God of fury and ire and anger when people uh, oppose him. 
But the last half of that psalm also has some wonderful, wonderful promises that exhilarate me, and I'm looking forward to preaching on them. But I want to end today by suggesting four exercises that you can do to implement today's sermon. Remember, there can't be a disconnect between doctrine and practice. We've got to live out what we believe in our heads. First, begin to evaluate your faith and to elevate your faith by worshiping Jesus for who he is. If he's really God, then you can worship him by praying Psalm 104 to him. He created all things. Let me just give you an example here of a kind of prayer that could be transformational. This is praying Psalm 104. Jesus, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You wrap yourself in light as with a garment. You stretch out the heavens like a tent. You make your angels, spirits, and your ministers a flame of fire, etc., etc. And the more you begin to meditate upon these uh, these uh, scriptures, and the more you worship him as the almighty God, the more your doubts will evaporate as to whether he can do the things that are, that are spoken of in this, uh, in this psalm, whether he really can accomplish that. Keep in mind that the church's progress is limited by its faith. Your family's progress is limited by your faith. Your individual progress is limited by your faith. And worshiping Christ as divine, as almighty, looking at all of his attributes is designed to elevate your faith. See, the problem in America is not with the Republican or the Democratic Party. Yeah, they're, 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 they're a major problem. That's not the major problem. The major problem is that the church of Jesus Christ has set its sights way, way too low. It does not have faith in what Christ is planning to accomplish in history. Theoretically, yeah, that's going to happen, but it has no impact upon what they're doing now. What we need is faith. Do you think that God really is glorified by, by our striving to get a compromised uh, Republican elected? I think not. I think not. I think Christ is glorified when we take his word and his plan for history seriously and we say, I want to be out and out for Christ. I want to lay down my life to see his glory, his kingdom exalted uh, as far as this world stretches. And it's only as we deeply worship Christ, meditate upon his kingly purposes, that we're going to begin to have a longing for something far greater far greater than what's being accomplished. He could bring another great awakening in America. So don't settle for second best. Be a Gideon. Strive for something consistent with his majesty. A second way to apply this sermon is by meditating deeply on Christ's humanity and his priesthood. Okay, He is fully a man. If he is the branch of David, that means he can identify with you. He can sympathize with you. He cares about you. He is your elder brother who is committed to you. He wants to lift you out of the difficulties that you're experiencing. <coughs> but it also means that he is the first and the only perfect volunteer in the day of God's power. And that means he's also the pattern that we need to set for our lives. <coughs> We should not be looking to Phil Kaiser as our pattern. We should not be looking to other saints as our pattern. That, that's setting your sights way too low. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Don't be satisfied with anything less than conformity to Christ. As 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever claims to abide in him ought to live just as he lived. That's not legalism. That's full conformity to Christ. He's our pattern. He's our strength. This is one of the reasons why Paul did not have as his central passion to, uh, of life, Lord, make me like David. No, his passion was, Lord, that he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. He wanted to identify with Christ. That's who we need to look to. A third application is to write down every area of your life that is still a disputed territory. Write it down. Be very specific. Give it over to the Lord and say, Lord, you are the great conqueror, and I want you to conquer my life. I need to be conquered. And I want to be a volunteer in your army to conquer my own fleshly impulses and desires, but I can't do it unless I have tasted of your power. I need the day of your power. So, Lord, day by day, I am asking for the infilling of your Holy Spirit. I am asking that you would fight on my behalf and that I could fight on your behalf that I would be identified with your cause. And I give you these disputed areas. I'm declaring war against them because I know you have declared war against these things in my life. And I thank you and I bless you that you are sufficient for this war. Every day, take up the armor of Christ. Every day, seek the filling of the Spirit and determine to be a part of a Gideon's army. The last application is to find specific ways that you can volunteer. Verse 3 says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. And not a volunteer for Phil Kaiser, a volunteer for King Jesus, which covers every area of life, doesn't it? It's not a volunteer for the church, although that may be involved. It's a volunteer for King Jesus and his kingdom saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do? I know you've placed me in this earth with the specific job, the specific giftings or lack of giftings that I have. You've given me a purpose. And I know my purpose is not to live for myself. My purpose is to advance the cause of King Jesus. This is what Wilberforce did. Wilberforce was passionate. If you aren't a volunteer in the army of Christ, it means you have not tasted of the day of his power because when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power, he instills within you a passion to live for his glory, a desire to be a volunteer. And so bow yourself before him. Confess your sin of being AWOL, absent without leave. Seek his power. Resolve to start using everything you are and everything you have for the advancement of his kingdom. This is what Wilberforce did. William Wilberforce initially was going to leave his position in Parliament, wasn't it? Or was it the House of Lords? One of the two. Parliament, I think it was. He was going to leave there and become a priest because he thought that's serving God. No, every area of life is service to God. If you think you're serving God by bailing out of the world, you're mistaken. Christ Jesus wants to conquer every square inch of life, and he's got a specific purpose for every one of you to play in doing that. And so what Wilberforce said is, everything I have, everything I am, I devote to the Lord. I want to use my position. I want to use my money. I want to use my talents, everything I have to accomplish the purposes of Christ. Now, there are a lot of people who said, Wilberforce this is ridiculous. This is not a winnable war. You've got to you got to fight for something that's achievable. Let's do incrementalism. You know, let's, let's uh, set our goals a little bit lower. But he was so passionate and burning with a desire to see Christ's purposes accomplished in his life that he could not 
lower himself to do less than what Christ wanted to be accomplished. And Christ accomplished it in his weakness. Christ accomplished it in his weakness. And so it might be leveraging your job or your money or your talents for the kingdom, but try to be as specific as you can on what things you're going to volunteer to Jesus. He is the exalted kingly priest, and he is worthy of your best. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, sometimes we feel clobbered by your word, and yet at the same time we know that you are lifting us up through your word, and you are giving to us hope through your word. And I pray that each one here would come from this place filled with joy that, yes, we can take on every enemy, every stronghold, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of you. Because if you are for us, who can be against us? Father, I pray that you would be for this, your people. And Father, we recognize that you are sovereign even in your timing of when you will raise up and who you will raise up into a Gideon's army. And uh, we, we cannot push for that apart from your grace. But I pray that you would take the feebleness and the weakness of this speech and stir up within those that you have chosen such a fire as cannot be extinguished until King Jesus has subdued all things under his feet. We want your glory. We want the advancement of your kingdom. And so we, we plead with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, do your work in us. Raise us from the ash heap and make us, Father, to be kings and priests who sense and know and experience the authority and the power that we have as princes and princesses seated with you in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We bless you, Father, that though in ourselves we are nothing, you called the church a worm, Jacob, and yet through Christ you have made us to be a significant bride, a significant army. And Father, I pray that this church would be a portion of that army that would uh, bring about incredible changes in this city. May you receive all the honor, praise, adoration, worship, and glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.